0: This memorandum addresses the matter. How can we use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies? Mm. Nice memo. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Who's White House? I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me Jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in From the middle From
1: Pacifica Radio me. in Los Angeles This is the world-famous oh, broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 it's FM hard. in LA Up in Oregon on the Central Coast On KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ and Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's am 950 ktnf amongst others we also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the progressive voices channel netroots radio indie media weekly fyi nation nicole sandler.com radio free brooklyn gdpr revolution 99 workforce rising and detour talk also amongst others Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week, I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for Joining us today for, if nothing else, Desi Doyen will be joining us with the Green News Report <laughs> a little bit later.
2: Bringing a little ray of Green News sunshine.
1: As we learned that the lie uh, that the Interior Department uh, Secretary Ryan Zinke told when he took office that the administration would not sell off our public lands, we learned... Uh, Well, it turns out to be a lie after all. Surprise! As the uh, Interior Department, yes, plans to sell off our public lands. That and much more in today's GNR coming up in a while. Uh, But first, Rachel Maddow of MSNBC opened up her show on Wednesday night with a reminder of a landmark event that was, of course, A White House secret at the time, 47 years ago this week, when Richard Nixon's White House counsel drafted the first memo in what would become Richard Nixon's infamous Enemies list.
0: August 16th is the anniversary of this amazing document. Uh, You can see at the top there, it is dated August 16th, 1971. And then it says the top line on the left there underlined, all caps, confidential. Memorandum, subject, dealing with our political enemies. This is a memorandum um, written on this date in 1971 uh, by a man named John Dean, when John Dean was working as White House counsel to President Richard Nixon. So the job Don McGahn has right now for Donald Trump, John Dean had that job for Richard Nixon. And in that capacity, he wrote this confidential memorandum. Quote, This memorandum addresses the matter of how we can maximize the fact of our incumbency in dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to our administration. Stated a bit more bluntly, how can we use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies? Now, that is not me giving you a snarky modern paraphrase of something that appears more elegantly in this 47-year-old document. That's literally what John Dean wrote in this Nixon White House memo. How can we use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies? And then he's got a proposal. Quote, after reviewing this matter with a number of persons possessed of expertise in this field, really, Um, I have concluded that we do not need an elaborate mechanism or game plan. Rather, we need a good project coordinator and full support for the project. In brief, this system would work as follows. And then there's three bullet points. Number one, key members of the staff, and then he gives some examples, including our old friend Pat Buchanan, quote, should be requested to inform us as to who they feel we should be giving a hard time. Wow. Number two, the project coordinator should then determine what sorts of dealings these individuals have with the federal government and how we can best screw them. Forgive me, but that's literally what he says. How we can best screw them. Uh, for example, grant availability if they have contracts, litigation, prosecution, etc. Number three. The project coordinator then should have access to and the full support of the top officials of the agency or department in proceeding to deal with the
1: individuals. Now, that was the beginning of what would eventually become Nixon's notorious enemies list, which included politicians, political activists and, yes, a whole bunch of American journalists. Nixon would then use various mechanisms under executive branch control, like the IRS, which since Watergate has been turned into an independent executive agency, in theory, to help avoid things like the president using it to harass his perceived political enemies, which is one of the ways that the Nixon White House carried out the scheme that was cooked up by John Dean to use the reins of government to punish enemies, as you hear in that in that memo. Now, Matta was citing that then confidential White House memo and later uh, in her segment on this a testimony from John Dean to the congressional committees who were investigating the Watergate scandal. She was using that memo to decry Donald Trump's revoking of the security clearances of, uh, well, the security clearance of former CIA Director John Brennan. But he is the first of a list of perceived political enemies in, uh, in law enforcement and in the U.S. intelligence community that the White House has said they plan to punish in the very same way for daring to speak out against Donald Trump's presidency and his outlaw administration. They didn't cite anything that uh, that uh, John Brennan actually did wrong. He did not misuse his security clearance in any way, shape, or form, at least as the White House has uh, told us. They've just basically punished him because John Brennan used his First Amendment rights to speak out against this presidency, this White House, and Donald Trump. Now, um... I, I'd like to cite that memo. That's how Mattow was using it. I would like to cite that memo today. The beginning of an official White House full court press against members of the media and the idea of a constitutionally protected First Amendment free speech right and freedom of the press rights. I would like to use that memo to note that at least in a small way, the U.S. uh, and even world media today are pushing back at least a little bit today against the current White House under Donald Trump, which has done what even Nixon never dared do, which is to declare the free press, our news media, out loud and repeatedly to be enemies of the people that the media itself is the enemy of the people. Sure, Richard Nixon might have thought that back in 1971. He might have hated the media. But he did not come out in the same way that Donald Trump has over and over again, uh, essentially declaring war out in the open of the media. So now today... Uh, The media are pushing back just a little bit. Nearly 350 news organizations published editorials on Thursday pushing back against Trump's attacks on the media and defending freedom of the press. The publications are participating in a push that was organized originally by the Boston Globe to run editorials all on the same day denouncing what the paper called a, quote, dirty war against the free press. The U.K.'s Guardian also joined the effort and has published an editorial alongside outlets around the U.S. In their editorial, they say Donald Trump is not the first U.S. president to attack the press or to feel unfairly treated by it, but he is the first who appears to have a calculated and consistent policy of undermining, delegitimizing and even endangering the press's work. The Trump has long had a belligerent attitude toward the toward the press, labeling factually accurate reports as fake news, etc. He has stepped up his attack recently at both rallies and on Twitter, repeatedly describing news media and the free press as the, quote, enemy of the people. The enemy of the people and tweeting that they are, quote, very dangerous and sick, dangerous. The press is dangerous, dangerous to the security of this country. Now, of course, if something were to happen to someone in that media, well, you know, hey, they are a danger to this country itself. So, you know, would you put it past anyone who bought into this idea that the media is the enemy of the people to actually take action against that enemy? The hundreds of newspapers and sites participating today include the New York Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, Miami Herald, hundreds of others. A host of smaller papers from cities and towns around the country are also joining in. We are also joining in today on the broadcast. Trump has stepped up his attacks on the media In recent weeks, for example, at a rally in Pennsylvania, he pointed out the journalists covering the event and and derided them as, quote, fake, fake, disgusting news. The White House has also recently barred a CNN reporter from covering a public event after she dared to ask Trump a completely legitimate question regarding his longtime attorney and personal fixer, Michael Cohen. The outgoing United Nations Human Rights Commissioner told The Guardian this past week that Trump's comments are, quote, very close to incitement to violence. The rhetoric, he said, could easily lead to harm being inflicted on journalists just going about their work. The Guardian says they stand with the U.S. press in uh, their efforts to maintain the objectivity and the moral boundaries that this president, like so many others in more dangerous parts of the world, is doing so much to destroy. Now, while Donald Trump may hate free speech and hate a free press, I don't suspect he'll have any more success in actually changing our constitutional First Amendment rights in any major way than Richard Nixon did, and hopefully Trump will eventually find the same or worse fate than the one which befell Richard Nixon for his authoritarian behavior and transgressions and undermining of what most of us believe to be presidential decorum and, yes, American values. But where Nixon's attack on the media was a bit more discreet, at least he had the decency to use confidential memos, I guess, Donald Trump has been right out there in the open. And because his supporters are so wildly gullible after so many years of conditioning by right-wing, wingnut propaganda news outlets undermining the validity of actual facts reported by a, yes, often flawed, often very flawed American media, because they have been conditioned by the right-wing outlets, uh, those supporters, it seems, are ready to toss over any pretense of defending the U.S. Constitution as they used to pretend to care about in order to join Trump's war against the media, who he now describes as the enemy of the people. A dangerous escalation, as far as I see it, of longtime rhetoric against what the right had long decried as simply the liberal media, but now they are the enemy of the people, and not just to Trump, but to now a a majority of his followers. A majority of his followers believe that the media are the enemy of the people. A majority of Republicans say they believed the news media is, quote, the enemy of the people rather than, quote, an important part of democracy. This according to a new poll released this week. The poll is from Quinnipiac University. It shows that 51 percent of GOP respondents now identify with Donald Trump's, quote, enemy of the people line. The poll showed just 36 percent of GOP respondents called the news media an important part of democracy. Just 36 percent. A much smaller share uh, than any other group listed out by Quinnipiac, only 5 percent of Democrats and 24 percent of independents called the news media the, quote, enemy of the people that compared to 91 percent of Democrats and 65 percent of independents uh, who said that uh, the media is, quote, an important part of democracy. Overall, Tuesday's poll showed 26 percent of respondents said the news media is the enemy of the people. So when you factor in all of those Republicans into the population as a whole, I want to say just 26 percent of respondents uh, think the news media is the enemy of the people. That still seems like a large number, but of course, that's largely due to all of those Republicans who feel that way. Sixty five percent of the public at large uh, said that uh, the media is an important part of democracy. Ten percent say neither or they don't know. Out of all these subgroups in the poll, only self-identified Republicans had more, and in this case a majority, who felt that the media are the enemy of the people. And this is a a major pollster and a sizable poll. This is Quinnipiac, and it took a a large sampling of more than 1,175 voters from August 9th through August 13th. A June poll from Quinnipiac on the very same question saw 42 percent of Republicans saying enemy of the people. In July, that inched up to 45 percent of the uh, saying uh, enemy of the people. And now 51 percent of GOP respondents say the media is the enemy of the people. So his repeated and intensifying rhetoric here does appear to be having an effect at least on his own voters, and I expect this pattern will continue with more of them uh, feeling that way, which is moving us toward a pretty dangerous place in this country, I would say. Now, uh, I should add here one caveat, uh, and and this is a caveat that I think, by the way, should now be applied to uh, all sorts of Polls that are finding, for example, you know, 85% of Republicans or whatever ridiculously high number we're at now, uh, 85% of Republicans support the president and his policies, or even you know, to polls regarding elections this November. Now, I'm not a pollster, so I do not know for sure, but I believe that it is quite likely that the pope that the pool of voters who are now willing to identify as Republican is smaller and smaller and smaller. So those willing to call themselves Republicans anymore are, you know, anyone who's left willing to admit they're a Republican are now pretty strident Trump supporters, I would think, overall. And I think it's unclear to me whether or not the pollsters have adequately adjusted their, uh, their poll modeling to account for that. Does that make sense, Des?
2: Oh, it totally makes sense when you can actually look at the number of people who say, I no longer identify as Republican. It is hard to to settle on what those exact numbers are. But, you know, when it's it's also difficult to put that into the methodology of that poll.
1: Well, and because the polls are probably still using the same mix of Republicans and Democrats when they come, you know, come out with these polls. And, you know, then when they have these subsets of, well, here's what only the Republicans I uh, have to say, well, these are going to be the most strident Republicans who have not left the party, who are not embarrassed now to claim that they're uh, that they are Republicans. So, you know, uh, it it may take much longer to find that same number of Republicans that are included in the, in these polls that they used to use. Uh, And yet they're still using the same mix of Republicans and Democrats and independents in their overall uh, pools. So if so, you know, we may have a case where our polling is now entirely broken. I don't know. We'll find out as we head into the uh, 2018 midterms. Our poll numbers may be entirely off. We may find that Republicans do far worse ...than they are currently predicted to do this year because of the change in the pool of Republicans, of self-identified Republicans who are out there. I don't know, and I certainly wouldn't count on that happening, but that could become the pollster's excuse uh, you know, regarding a blue wave if, in fact, a larger-than-expected blue wave hits this November, but we'll see. If we take Quinnipiac's numbers here as is, this is a very troubling development, as I see it, regarding Republicans, a majority of whom now see the press as the enemy of the people. And I should add, I've spent, you know, many years decrying the failures of our media, particularly our corporate media. Yeah, they suck. In many ways, as anyone who listens to this show or reads Bradblog.com over the years knows, uh, I got a lot of problems with the media. Uh, In in some respects, I think they've gotten somewhat better in recent years. In other ways, they are still just as awful and ill-serving the electorate as ever. But I never think to see them or describe them as the enemies of the people. So this is my way of supporting Our terrible media uh, and hoping that they find ways to get better uh, and better serve an electorate, which desperately needs informing, particularly in advance of what I see as the most crucial midterm elections in the history of our country. uh, Less than three months from now, but. They're not the enemy. They need to be supported. I hope you will consider, um, as many are urging today, you know, supporting your local newspapers wherever you may live or whatever newspapers out there that you might read on the web, uh, frankly, whatever media outlet. I've asked many times. I'll ask again today. Please support. If you're listening to this show on a, on a progressive radio station, they are probably, in most cases, not commercial-sponsored. They probably requ- uh, uh, rely on support by folks like you, so please consider supporting whatever media outlet—hopefully a progressive media outlet—but whatever media outlet is uh, is serving you right now. We all need your help. We talked about a story—was uh, it yesterday, Desi, or the day before—that story out of Missouri, that Nazi that was elected in yes. uh, a rural area of Missouri? Yeah that we didn't know he was a nazi until after the election and there he was out there saying nazi things on the air he has a radio show at some place and he and and he's you know been talking about how hitler was right and how did that get missed by the local media well Probably the local media doesn't exist the way they used to. They've probably shut down newspapers in that area of Missouri, uh, fired local reporters who used to look into those sorts of things. So if it's not a a major election, a major candidate, in this case it was a, a candidate for the Missouri U.S. House of Representatives, which seems to me pretty major, but that's the sort of coverage that local media may not be doing anymore because they can't afford it. So... Uh, Please consider helping them out.
2: Yeah, and, and even in that particular story, the Kansas City Star was the one that elevated it up to more national prominence. But, you know, Kansas City Star has a limited staff. They have to travel to these places, and they're probably also in need of assistance because they also cover the entire state. So your local media and your state media, those are the people that are on the ground doing the reporting of what's actually happening with especially elected officials who directly affect your life.
1: Toward that end, maybe a little, little less coverage, maybe, of Omarosa around the clock, just a suggestion, perhaps a little bit more coverage of what's actually happening in this country and to its people, including, yes, to the Trump voters. That might be nice. For example, while it's widely expected in the uh, the media that the economy is going well, I would argue that the the stock market is mostly doing well. And yes, unemployment is down, but with jobs that don't pay well. And a stock market where you've got all of these uh, corporations buying back their stock and making uh, their companies looking like they are healthier than, in fact, they actually are. Buying back their stock thanks to the... Trump GOP tax cut that gave them this windfall with which to do it. But, yeah, uh, unemployment is down with the b- because of jobs that don't pay particularly well. Wages continue to fall, at least compared to uh, the huge corporate profits, which continue to rise to all-time record highs. All of that masking trouble, I would argue, in the economy that lies ahead in the not-too-distant future. Eric Levitz was writing about uh, some of this this week in the uh, New York Intelligencer. He says, in making their case for for the president's sweeping tax cut package last year, Republicans made two major and majorly ludicrous promises that the law would neither increase the federal deficit nor deliver the bulk of its benefits to the very wealthy. He quotes uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who said who assured the public last September, quote, not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. That claim was echoed by the Republican parties, uh, as he describes her preeminent moderate Susan Collins, who repeated that she informed meet the press that the tax cuts would, quote, stimulate the economy, create more jobs and thus, quote, generate more revenue. Donald Trump, for his part, insisted that the, quote, tax reform will protect low income and middle income households, not the wealthy and well connected. And the National uh, Economic Council director, Gary Cohn, vowed at the time, quote, the wealthy are not getting a tax cut under our plan. I know it's shocking. All of that turns out to have been complete B.S., and the recent numbers from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office and elsewhere continue to reveal what a massive lie to the American people that that was, in fact. A year later, now, uh, that experiment with supply side economics has confirmed the results of prior trials of that sort of supply side economic nonsense. And it turns out that giving huge tax cuts to the wealthy makes them richer and it makes the government poorer. And ordinary Americans, more or less, uh, will, well, they'll either be unaffected by that, they won't get any wealthier, or they will end up losing via cuts to social spending or public investment. The Congressional Budget Office now projects the federal deficit will climb by 39 percent this year, thanks to those tax cuts and corporate Revenues coming into the government will fall by 27 percent in all. We're looking at almost one trillion dollar deficit this year, thanks to those tax cuts, and even higher in uh, in the years as we move forward. The GOP's second promise, uh, Levitt's notes, is not holding up any better. The law's effects have actually been more regressive than many on the left had anticipated. Although the idea that corporations would share their tax breaks with workers was always dubious, it was plausible that the law would produce a fiscal stimulus that tightened the labor markets and lifted wages. Well, unemployment has, in fact, fallen Uh, to decades lows. However, the inflation that has been unleashed by Trump's deficit spending has actually resulted in a decline in real wages. That's right. Those forgotten men and women in the middle class who Trump had promised to remember and who were told that they were going to do very well by this Trump GOP tax cut, they are actually now making less than they made before the tax cuts. And then add to that... Donald Trump's trade war, which is already hurting his supporters in farm communities, for example. Uh, But it's not just the farmers who are taking it on the chin. Regular jobs, manufacturing jobs, factory jobs are now beginning to go away thanks to his trade wars and his tariffs. Here's just a few anecdotal examples from uh, the past week. Uh, Last week, a TV plant in Fairfield County, South Carolina. That's Trump, uh, Trump, Trump country, Fairfield County, South Carolina. They said they were closing as a result of tariffs and they were laying off 126 employees. Element TV Company in Winsboro served notice to the South Carolina Department of Workforce and Employment that it will close in October, which will result in the layoff of 126 of its 134 full time employees, according to South Carolina's WLTX. Officials with the company say the layoff and closure are, quote, the result of new tariffs that were recently and unexpectedly imposed on many goods imported from China, including the key television components used in our assembly operations in Winsboro. Founded in 2007, headquartered in the town, Element Electronics is the only assembled in-U.S. TV brand sold at major retailers like Walmart, Target Etc. Now, a few hours after WLTX ran their story on the uh, on the company's official notification to the state that they planned uh, to shut down their plant and uh, have all these layoffs, something appears to have happened. And the company sort of changed their story for some reason, slightly after giving official notice to the state a few hours later. After the story was published by WLTX, they posted this on their Facebook page. Quote, thank you to everyone who has expressed concern for the well-being of our South Carolina teammates who are at risk of layoff as a result of the trade war related tariffs on our television parts. As we are the only USA assembler of televisions, we believe the inclusion of our parts on the list of uh, of affected products is accidental and resolvable. Element is now working hard to have our parts removed from the tariff list, and we remain hopeful that the closure of of our South Carolina factory will be avoided. We expect to successfully remove our parts from the tariff list and save our U.S. factory and impacted jobs. Again, thank you for your concern and support of Element. So they now say they hope it will be uh, temporary, this sh- shutdown and that they will somehow be able to reopen in three to six months, but they can't commit one way or another uh, to any certainty at this point.
2: Well, those lucky workers, they get to wait for three to six months to find out what's going to happen with their if, jobs.
1: If anything happens. And, you know, I this smells a lot like uh, someone in the White House saw this and say, hey, let's let's find whatever parts that they use that, uh are on this list, and let's get them off the list. We're, you know, going to get bad publicity from this.
2: Well, sure, it's like courtiers going to the king and supplicating him for an exemption from his crazy tariffs. Now, so as long as you've got a company that will uh, that has some kind of pull at the White House, you might be lucky, but it shouldn't be that way.
1: This was last week, uh, this uh, story about Element TV. This week, another manufacturer is announcing that the trade war is forcing them as well to close their American plants and layoff workers a manufacturer of storage safes is closing its two Chicago area factories and moving operations to Mexico that's right the American jobs are going to Mexico because of the Trump administration's tariffs on metal from China according to the Chicago Tribune Stack On Products plans to lay off 128 people at its facility in north suburban Wakanda no, not that Wakanda. Oh, there's, that. <laughs> apparently, there's a Wakanda in uh, in Illinois. Who knew?
2: But not the right kind of Wakanda. Wa- oh well,
1: Wakanda forever. And 25 people at its uh, McHenry plant will also be laid off when both facilities close on October 12. The decision to reload o- relocate operations to Juarez, Mexico, was made about two months ago when Donald Trump announced tariffs on numerous goods and materials from China as well as from other countries. Al Fletcher, the human resources director for Alpha Guardian, the Vegas-based parent company, said Mr. Trump is part of this. That, of course, referring to the uh, tariffs on $34 billion of Chinese technology goods and $3 billion of Chinese steel and aluminum, and uh, the proposal for another $16 billion at least. In fact, Trump has threatened to uh, impose tariffs on some $200 billion of goods coming from China. And uh, China is already retaliating with similar tariffs in response. This uh, company, StackOn, which has operated in the Chicago area for 40 years, makes storage products from toolboxes to gun vaults that are sold at Walmart and other mass retailers well they've operated in the Chicago area for 40 years but maybe not for much longer. It's only US factories were those two in the Chicago areas area and the uh, layoffs affect manufacturing jobs, warehouse jobs and office staff. So all of this is just months Before an election where Republicans are touting their tax plan uh, and the great economy and Trump is ramping up his trade wars at the same time. And the American uh, working class is actually losing wages and beginning now to lose their jobs entirely thanks to what Republicans are doing here. So, yes, Mr. President, um, who is the enemy of the people again Take a quick break and we will come back with more on the Bradcast. Uh, Yeah, I'm running late. So what we're going to cover next? I don't know. We will find out right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Aretha Franklin, the undisputed queen of soul, who sang uh, with uh, matchless style, as AP describes it, on such classics as Think, I Say a Little Prayer, her signature song Respect, and stood as a cultural icon around the globe, died on Thursday at age of 76 from pancreatic cancer at her home in Detroit. Professional singer and accomplished pianist, by the time uh, she was in her late teens, she became a superstar by her mid-20s. She had uh, long ago settled any argument over who was the greatest popular vocalist of her time. AP says she, uh, Clive Davis is quoted, the music mogul who brought her over to Arista Records and helped her revive her career in the 80s, says she was truly one of a kind. She was more than the queen of soul. She was a national treasure to be cherished by every generation. She recorded hundreds of tracks and had dozens of hits over the span of a half century, including 20 that reached number one on the R&B charts. Her reputation was defined by an extraordinary run of top 10 smashes in the late 60s from You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman to Chain of Fools to the unstoppable call for respect, which became an anthem of the civil rights movement. She toured the U.S. with Martin Luther King Jr. She sang at his funeral. She sang at inauguration events for three presidents, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. She won 18 Grammy Awards. She was the first woman to have 100 hits, 100 hits, on the U.S. Billboard charts. And in 1987, she became the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So the Queen of Soul has died. Long live the Queen. All right, let me uh, try to get to one more story here uh, before we uh, come back with Desi Doyen in the Green News Report and all the trouble that she will cause, as she does. (laughs) As one does. Uh, Last month, and and I had been trying to get to this, but, uh, well, now we have reason to get to it again. I was trying to get to this last month, but CNN had reported at the time that Donald Trump's proposed military parade could cost as much as the canceled military exercises with South Korea that he described at the time as, quote, tremendously expensive. That's what he said when he canceled those uh, military exercises after his meeting with North Korea's Kim Jong-un and uh, canceled them without bothering to notify his own military chiefs first. Three defense officials said at the time that the parade, which is currently scheduled for November 10, this thing may actually happen, and actually happened just four days after the midterm elections on November 10, a military parade in Washington, D.C. Um, anyway, last month they estimated that it would cost approximately $12 million, according to CNN, The Pentagon said earlier in July that the now canceled war games, as Donald Trump called them in South Korea, were estimated to cost 14 million dollars. So tremendously expensive, needed to be canceled and replaced with the parade that nobody in the world wants other than Donald Trump. But never mind that. That was that was last month. That was then. One month later, the parade is no longer estimated to cost $12 million, but as CNBC reports today, the parade will now cost, wait for it, $92 million. $80 million more than initially estimated. That, according to a U.S. defense official with firsthand knowledge of the assessment, the figure consists of $50 million from the Pentagon and $42 million from Uh, other interagency partners such as the Department of Homeland Security. Well, I'm glad we gave all of that extra money to the Pentagon and to the Department of Homeland Security to keep us safe by running a parade down Washington, D.C. with tanks and rockets and big shiny airplanes and whatever the hell else Donald Trump is going to do here.
2: You know, because God forbid we should use any of that $92 million to, I don't know, increase the pay of active duty troops or, I don't know, maybe help out veterans with their medical care.
1: Or maybe um, give it back to the middle class who are paying these taxes, who haven't gotten these uh, these tax cuts that the corporations and the wealthy have, or maybe to lower the the deficit, which Republicans like Donald Trump used to pretend to give a damn about i this is just one of the reasons that I refuse to call these people conservatives. They are not conservatives. And I wish the rest of the media, the lousy media, who is not the enemy of the people, but they are lousy. I wish they would figure that out, too, and stop granting this gift of calling these right wingers conservatives. They are not conservative. It is not conservative to spend ninety two million dollars on a on, on a parade that nobody actually wants. that uh, 92 million dollars co- includes uh, security, transportation of parade assets, aircraft, temporary duty for troops. The official also said that uh, that experts put to rest, oh we don't have to worry now. they put to rest the concerns about whether the Abrams tanks, which weigh in at just shy of 70 tons, whether that would ruin the infrastructure in Washington, whether that would ruin the roads, they say they did an analysis. Who knows how much that costs? But they did an analysis, and they found that because of the weights, the vehicles' distributed weight and the track pads, the streets of the nation's capital will not be compromised.
2: Well, that's good to know. I'm glad they figured that out before they actually did it.
1: Do you believe them? We'll see. Uh, The U.S. has not held a major military parade in Washington since 1991. That was to mark the end of uh, Operation Desert Storm. No, there was never any parade after Iraq. There was never any parade after Afghanistan. Oh, that's right, because we're still in both countries, amongst other reasons. That parade, by the way, in 1991, to mark the end of Operation Desert Storm, that one cost... $8 $8 million, and it was paid for with just $3 million in government funds. The rest came from private donations. So that one cost $3 million, and this one cost $92 million. And, of course, dwarfs the previous estimate of $12 million just one month ago. We're still about three months away from this parade, so who knows what it will be at that point. Uh, but again... The military parade was expected to cost as much as the, quote, tremendously expensive bilateral military exercises that Donald Trump canceled with South Korea after his uh, summit in Singapore with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Back when he said, quote, we save a fortune by not doing war games as long as we're negotiating in good faith. That's what he tweeted right after his meeting with Kim Jong-un in Singapore Jesus Christ are these people uh, liars scoundrels, hustlers con artists, grifters they certainly ain't conservative alright, for more uh, lying, hustling, grifting and con artistry take a quick break, we'll come back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman <laughs> Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from BradBlog.com. Des- Uh, There is a follow-up that I want to try to hit on uh, one of your Green News Report stories today, afterwards, and there's another story I've been carrying around with me for weeks that I'm trying (laughs) to get to. So we'll see if I have time for it today uh, after our latest Green News Report. From bad to worse tonight, as the number of fires across the province approaches 600.
2: British Columbia declares state of emergency over wildfires. The
0: full liability could be $5 billion based on past product liability suits.
2: Toronto's parent company grapples with massive judgment against Roundup Weed Killer.
0: As far as Puerto Rico is concerned, we have had tremendous reviews. We're doing a great job.
2: Eleven months later, the largest blackout in U.S. history is finally over. Mostly. Plus...
0: You can hear it from my lips, we will not sell or transfer public
1: land. <laughs>
2: Surprise! So. Interior Department readies plans to sell off public lands from Utah National Monument.
1: All of those surprises and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. All over California, wildfires are spreading like... They're they're spreading like something. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Anyway, it's a lot of fire. Okay, dizzy doing. it's not just here in the U.S. where wildfires are going crazy. They got some problems up in Canada as well, I guess.
2: Yes, yes, unfortunately they do. First, it was California that had to deal with these massive megafires. Now it is British Columbia's turn. The Canadian province this week also declared a state of emergency as firefighters from around the world battle nearly 600 out-of-control wildfires that are burning across the province. Canada has also deployed the Canadian. Armed Forces to assist in the effort.
1: Nothing to see here. Everything's fine.
2: Meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, the largest blackout in U.S. history has finally ended, mostly. Puerto Rico's electric utility says it has restored power to the last home that lost electricity after Hurricane Maria, 11 months after the Category 4 storm destroyed most of the island's fragile ancient power grid. But the grid is still unstable, and residents report that the electricity is still very unreliable.
1: And just to be clear, that was September 20 of 2017, almost a year ago. And now the power is finally back, mostly.
2: And the lack of electricity and access to basic services over those 11 months had deadly consequences. After months of denial, Puerto Rico's government notified Congress that it estimates the final death toll from Maria is not 64, but likely to be more than 1,400.
1: Well, that was close.
2: Trump Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, in his first speech to agency staffers back in 2017, said this.
0: And I can tell you. You can hear it from my lips. We will not sell or transfer public land. Oh, uh, so.
2: But this week, the Trump administration published a draft proposal to sell off public lands, starting with 1,600 acres of the public lands that Trump had previously slashed from Utah's Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument, despite those repeated promises by Interior Secretary Zinke that no public lands would be transferred or sold.
1: Huh. Turns out Ryan Zinke is a huge liar. Who'd have guessed it?
2: The Huffington Post reports that the sale may be for the benefit of Republican Utah State Representative Mike Noel, a major critic of National Monument Protections. Noel just happens to own acreage adjacent to one parcel on the chopping block that has been stripped from the monument by President Trump.
1: What a surprise.
2: The stock price of Bayer, which just bought U.S. agribusiness giant Monsanto, has plunged 15 percent in the wake of a jury verdict, ordering its subsidiary, agribusiness giant Monsanto, to pay nearly $290 million in damages to a school groundskeeper. The jury agreed with groundskeeper Dwayne Lee Johnson that exposure to Monsanto's popular weed killer Roundup caused his terminal cancer. Johnson's lawyers said that jurors were finally able to see internal company documents showing Monsanto knew for years that glyphosate, the main ingredient in Roundup, could cause cancer. The company says it will appeal the jury's verdict, but Johnson's is only the first of some 4,000 lawsuits against Monsanto. Mm. Some good news. Development of the offshore wind industry in the United States does lag far behind Europe. But Bloomberg News reports that America's first large offshore wind project off the coast of Massachusetts is offering long-term contracts to provide electricity that will save consumers about $1.4 billion in electricity costs over 20 years. And finally, in Appalachia, some victories against new pipelines. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, issued a stop work order this week on construction of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline after an appeals court rejected crucial permits due to the pipeline's impact on public lands and endangered species. That same appeals court also recently rejected permits granted to the Mountain Valley Pipeline in Appalachia, ruling that the Trump administration should not have permitted the pipeline to cut through the Jefferson National Forest and under the Appalachian Trail.
1: Has Ryan Zinke called those courts environmental terrorists yet?
2: Nope, not yet.
1: Only a matter of time. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And
2: I'm Desi Doyle.
1: And this has been your Green News Report. (laughs) Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. And yes, Ryan Zinke, the Interior Department uh, Chief Secretary, actually called environmental groups—this is just within the past week—called them environmental terrorists. So you've got the Secretary of the Interior Department calling the Sierra Club— Terrorists and the president of the United States calling the media the enemy of the people. That's yeah. where we are.
2: I, I think this, uh, like, I mean, I, I keep saying this, this is a dangerous escalation in the rhetoric that the Trump administration is publicly using um, against their, you know, what they perceive to be their political opponents, and I'm not seeing any pushback at all from the corporate media. Those would be the people that would pre- presumably be the ones that have the power to nationally... Bring this to the attention of the people and, and, and some accountability for, hey, can you guys knock it off?
1: They're pushing back on what they have been called. They've been called enemies of the people. Right. That they're pushing back on today. But environmentalists being called terrorists by the Secretary of the Interior? That would be a firing offense, I should think, in any other uh, White House. But now... It's not even covered in the media. all right, very quick. let me see if I can fit at least one of these in. You had mentioned this horrible story about Monsanto and Roundup and the two hundred and what was it eighty nine million dollar verdict against one guy who uh, developed terminal cancer and there's four thousand more such stories actually,
2: it's closer to five thousand more similar trials that are pending right now. His was fast tracked because he's only forty six and he's not expected to live another couple of months.
1: Well, in addition to all of those people suffering from uh, Monsanto's Roundup, uh, New York Daily News uh, has this story out today. A weed killing chemical found in Roundup, the most commonly used pesticide in the U.S. is also present in some of the country's most popular oat based cereals and snacks. New laboratory testing shows the herbicide glyphosate, which has been linked to cancer by the World Health Organization, was found in 43 of 45 samples of products made with conventionally grown oats, according to the nonprofit Environmental Working Group. I guess that's one of those terrorist groups. Yeah, they're actually that Zinke was talking about.
2: They're actually quite venerable. They do extremely good, very scientific work. They uh, they know their stuff.
1: 31 of the samples contained glyphosate levels above what EWG scientists considered to be safe for children. And roughly one third of 16 product samples using organically grown oats also contained traces of glyphosate, though their levels were well below the uh, health benchmark from EWG, according to the report. Last week, a California jury ordered Roundup maker Monsanto to pay $289 million in damages to this uh, man dying of cancer. And this was tied back to glyphosate, which EWG actually had uh, been warning about for a long time. In April, nonprofit U.S. Right to Know obtained emails showing that tests conducted by the FDA revealed a quote fair amount of glyphosate in some foods however the FDA has not released any official results yet for some reason among the uh, products found to contain glyphosate uh, nature banana walnut granola clusters, Cheerios toasted whole grain oat cereal Quaker old fashioned oats those were among the products that contained the highest level of glyphosate according to EWG so so, good luck eating tomorrow. All right. One, do I, can I do, finally? All right. I've been trying to get to this forever. I think even before Scott Pruitt over at the EPA resigned. But nearly $10,000 of uh, office redecoration that you know about that was reported uh, included the purchase of a desk for his staffers that the staffers feared was contaminated by a toxic chemical. Email interactions between EPA staffers. First reported by Politico showed that aides worried about the potential health effects of formaldehyde found in this desk that they were purchasing for Scott Walker's remodeling of his, uh, not Scott Walker, Scott Pruitt's remodeling of his office. The fears they raised came just months before the EPA blocked the release of of a report highlighting the dangers of formaldehyde exposure in drinking water.
2: Oh, the irony.
1: So they didn't want to let the public know about it. But when it came to Scott Pruitt and his safety, they were very concerned about it. According to the emails, uh, which were released through a FOIA request, staffers worried about a safety warning that was placed on the desk from California, which classifies formaldehyde as a carcinogen. They were so concerned about the warning that the acting deputy chief of staff at the time, reached out to an EPA career official serving as acting head of EPA's Toxic Chemicals Office for advice. He wrote in the email, Sorry to bother you with this, but we need some help. The desk the administrator wants for his office from Amazon has a California Proposition 65 warning. What I'm asking is, can someone in your area tell us whether it is okay to get this desk for the administrator related to the warning?
2: Protections for Pruitt, but not for the public. Uh,
1: Yeah, they were so worried about uh, the warning about formaldehyde for Pruitt, but not for everyone else, apparently. They are the EPA. You'd think they might have some interest in looking into what we do out here uh, regarding Prop 65 in California and that warning to find out if there's something to it. But they didn't. But they didn't, at least not for the public, just for Scott Pruitt. So this sort of tells you everything you need to know about this administration and uh, their interest in protecting the people, that protection part of the Environmental Protection Agency. It is unclear whether or not that desk was ultimately purchased for Pruitt's office, who has since been fired. Alrighty then, thank you very much Uh, Desi Doyen, our producer and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com Drop me email, always good to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the BradBlog. and of course my thanks to those of you who keep us uh, up on the airwaves, even though we are the enemy of the people by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Angie Koiro's in for us on the next thrilling broadcast. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.